And uh, please turn, if you would, to your copy of God's Holy Word and Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. Now, in God's providence, uh, it seemed appropriate to add a new installment to our gospel worship series, given the time of year. Uh, You know that our uh, gospel worship series deals with worship in the gospel era. This is, I believe, the 18th sermon in that series. So we're building on a lot that came before us. And today we deal with the idea of man-made holy days, days not found in the scriptures. Uh, This is a didactic sermon, and if you've never heard preaching on this topic before, it may be very uncomfortable to you to hear some of these things, but uh, we must seek to be Bereans when we search out the word of God and see if these things are so. And we know that our flesh is very corrupt and we are prone to idolatry, so we want to make sure that everything that we do conforms to the word of God of God for the sake of God's glory. So I trust you will keep an open mind if this is new to you. I know this is not new to many of you, but it might be new to some of you. Well, with that then, Exodus chapter 32, and you remember this is when Moses had gone up to receive the law from God and has gone 40 days and 40 nights, and that is where we pick up our reading. It's a lengthy reading, so please bear with me. Exodus 32. These are the words of God. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot or know not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives or your sons, of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graven uh, tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, and this is particular our text here, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it. And have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians say, uh, speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self and saidst unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and uh, made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, 
What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the camp, uh, the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, uh, will, uh, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a solemn text this is. We pray, Father, that we would not be those who love idolatry more than we love you, O God. And so, Father, give us a clear sight of Jesus in the preaching of the word. Jesus as he is, not as we would like him to be, not as we would want to see him, but as he truly, purely is in the word of God. Help us put away any of ourself as we come to this text. Help the minister not preach his own opinion, his own thoughts, his own desires, his own fleshes, uh, uh, wants even. But instead, help your minister be a true servant of God, that he would truly, really preach this text as you would intend it to be preached. And so, Father, as we come to the word preached, our simple prayer is this, not our will, but thy will be done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new to the church, you might ask the question, why will you not have a Christmas service next Lord's Day? Um, you know, typically, if you've been here with us, we just continue to preach whatever series we happen to be in on such weeks. And it's not because we're oblivious to the day or we forgot what uh, time of year it is. But it is a scriptural conviction, friends, that we believe that God has appointed only one holy day for the Christian church, and it is the weekly Sabbath day, the Lord's day. And that the church really, and this is where I think we go wrong, the church has no power. She has not been given any power by God to proclaim any days holy that God himself has not said are holy. This is a limitation of church power and tyranny, really. Otherwise, you might be like some... Um, you know, you think of the Roman church or you think of the Eastern Orthodox. It's like there's day after day after day. You want to celebrate a feast day of Christ's circumcision? You have that too that you have to celebrate. So you see, there is a multiplication of days. And the church has no power to institute such things. Now, as December 25th coincides with the Lord's Day next week, instead of ignoring this topic and this theme in God's providence, it seems good to add to our worship series to understand that man-made religious traditions are not to be countenanced or observed, but to be eliminated from the church. You know, what are you going to see next week? And if you've been on the news or social media, you're going to see that when man's institutions collide with God's, next week you're going to find that a bunch of churches are going to be closed. Why? Because it's always the Lord's institution that suffers. 
because we want what we want. And we'll try to baptize it in the name of the Lord, but at the end of the day, we don't ask, what does God want? What has God instituted? What is he pleased with? And our question is always, what am I pleased with? And so we have to put the right uh, understanding of the glory of God and the holiness of God in all that we practice, most especially in worship. And um, friends, brethren, you'll be so blessed if you would yearn for a Jesus who is free of human traditions and superstitions. You'd be so blessed if you would know Jesus as he truly is, as he is in truth, as he is pure, as he is pure in the word. We wish to see Jesus as he is. We wish to adore Jesus as he wants to be adored, to worship him in spirit. And what's the other word? Truth. See, everything that we do must come out of the truth of God's word. Otherwise, it is to countenance a lie, and that is idolatry, friends. We turn the glory of the invisible God into something he is not, and that is to worship a lie. As the scripture says, we worship in spirit and in truth, not to be led by our own deceitful hearts, not to be uh, uh, led by the, uh, the, the entrancing words of man's words, but to be led by his word, the word of God. No matter, and this is the thing, right? We go wherever it tells us to go. Even if we endure ridicule or we receive ire even from good Christian folk, which we will often face in this world. Jesus says he's even come to divide families. Those who follow the Lord often have the grief of family even, and especially in this time of year. And I know not some of you are not immune to that. Well, with that then, our, our theme is Man-made holy days are to be eliminated. And I think you might find, if you've come like maybe out of a fundamentalist kind of church, you know, that, that is looking for paganism and all these things, I think our, our work is much simpler. Our work is much simpler as Christians. Uh, not that they're not Christians, mind you. But I think the work of the Christian is simple. Does God say to do it? Then we do it. If God doesn't say to do it, we don't do it. It doesn't matter what the roots are. It doesn't matter anything else. And those things are evil. I think our friends are right there. But that's not the core crux principle. And so that will consider our theme under three heads on your bulletin. Doctrines first, connections then to especially next week, and then applications for life. First, doctrines. Two things under this head. I want to first review the principles of worship. Then second, I want to consider specific doctrines as they arise out of this text. So for review, let me reiterate some foundational work from earlier in our series, especially if you've not been with us through all of that time. And what did we remember from the very first uh, uh, sermon in the series? The foundational principle of worship is the holiness of God. The utter holiness of God. In worship, we draw near the special presence of a thrice holy God. And we remember as we opened the series in Leviticus 10 verse 3, he said, I will be sanctified or hallowed by in them that come nigh me. Those who come near to God, he is to be set apart as holy. When did he say it? After he consumed those two priests, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, when uh, he consumed them because they offered what? Strange fire on the altar. This is not a principle done away with in the New Testament. You know, sometimes we become almost dispensationalists and we say, well, that must have been God. Maybe God was, and these are blasphemous words and sentiments. Maybe he was more cranky in the Old Testament, right? That's not the case, friends. The New Testament keeps this as an abiding principle. The very same worship principles apply. Yes, the types and ceremonies are gone. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more temple system and all those trappings. But God is God and God is holy. The principle of worship with fear and awe still abides. For instance, Hebrews 12, 28, let us have grace or thanks whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. You think, do you not think that the Hebrews maybe are thinking about the charred bodies of Nadab and Abihu when they read that? Why is it? that the Lord consumed Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus 10.1, they offered strange fire before the Lord. And these are the key words and the key principle, which he commanded them not. You see that? That's the principle of worship. God must command what we do in worship. They offered what the Lord did not command. And so from that principle, you always ask, what saith the Lord when it comes to worship? 
And you might know this, and that was, I believe, the third sermon in the series. That's the scriptural principle that is called the regulative principle of worship. That what the Lord has not commanded to us is forbidden. Right? In other words, we don't just open our Bibles and look at, okay, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that. Then everything else goes. And that's why today, um, next Lord's Day especially, or in this week, whenever, you'll have, you know, Santa sleighs in the midst of the worship service. A brother told us about, you know, real-life camels going into the worship of God. It doesn't say I can't do that in the Bible. But God's commandment is, whatever I say, you do that, everything else is forbidden. And what he has given us to do, we must not neglect to do. Uh, Deuteronomy 12.32 enshrines this principle in the context of worship. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. That's really just it in, in a nutshell. That's the regular principle. Whatever I have commanded you to do, observe it. And you might think, again, well, is that just an Old Testament principle? Maybe this is done away in the New. No, Jesus reasserts it in Mark 7.9. And I want you to listen to this, because this is our Savior speaking. Full well ye reject the commandment of God. Why? That ye may keep your own tradition. Those are chilling words, friends. We reject the commandment of God. This is Jesus, Son of God. Of course, he's God. But sometimes people need to hear it from the God-man. You reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. That's our heart. We reject what God says to keep our own traditions. That's the human heart. That's why God has given us this principle of worship. That's seen in this particular day, right? The Christian Sabbath day. Uh, how many will fight you tooth and nail to not keep this day? Oh, that, that's got to be gone away with, right? Well, why would you want to keep the Sabbath day? But it's a commandment of God. But then you try to go after the traditions of men, and they will come and think you are not even a Christian person. But what does Jesus say? Ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. And do you recall what Jesus said right before this in, uh, in, in Mark 7? He said, um, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You see, our Savior said that there is a way to worship the Lord in vain, and that's by keeping the traditions of men over the commandments of God. These things, for those who truly wish to worship God, should really strike a chord in us. And we should have a care then. We should say, okay, what is uh, it I might be doing that are coming from the traditions and commandments of men? And what are the things that are coming out of God? You and I must, from the scripture then, seek the will of God for worship. After all, and here's really the end of the day, the simple question, who is worship for? Who is worship for? Is it for you? No, it is for God. It is the creature's duty to God. And so the question is never, what makes me feel good? And if you're really at your spiritual best, what makes what God wants makes you feel good, right? These things are contrary. But the first question is not what makes me feel good, it's what does God want? We must seek the will of God. Otherwise, the Bible says we are guilty of will worship. Colossians 2.23, the apostle asks, why do we worship after the commandments and doctrines of men? Question mark. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Here's the other thing, right? There is often a facile show of wisdom and humility in will worship. You're going to hear things like, well, what's wrong with celebrating the incarnation? one day out of the year, one Lord's Day out of the year, or something like that. And the question is really not whether or not that has some show of wisdom, but whether God wants that. Otherwise, it's my will that's being exerted over God's, right? There's a, a pious and humble feature uh, or a facade to it. But no matter what it appears to be, Paul says, if it is not of God, it is will worship. You are worshiping according to your will, so who are you worshiping, really? yourself. That'll have to serve as a brief overview uh, and review, and you can uh, refer to the earlier entries in the sermon series. It's also uh, enshrined for you in the Confession of Faith, chapter 21. 
You might want to read that as far as the principles of worship, uh, of religious worship and the Sabbath day. It's in your bulletin, at least an extract there for you to look at. Now let's consider this principle, this regulative principle as it pertains to man-made holy days. And the more I meditated on our text, I know it was a, a long reading, but the more I found its relevance to December 25th. So I want to consider nine doctrines that it illustrates, um, and I'm going to fly by these really quickly, but I think they're a launching point for you. And the first doctrine that you cannot get away from is this simple fact. Man is prone to idolatry. That's the bent of our heart, is idolatry. Consider the text context. Moses had gone away to receive the law from God, 40 days and 40 nights. In his absence, right, the people say, I can't see Moses anymore. And they wrongly attributed to Moses, of course, that he delivered them, or really God delivered them. And Jehovah being the invisible God, they can't see him, of course, He's not like the false gods of the pagans. He is apprehended by faith and not by sight, right? And so they agitate for a golden calf. And you can read this wrong, and I don't have time to go through all of it, but I think you see it in Aaron's work here. They're not stupid. They're not creating a new god, but they want a representation of Jehovah to see the god that had brought them out of Egypt, to see him in a way he ought never to be seen. Because God's people, not just pagans, and that's the thing right here, God's people, not just pagans, are prone to idolatry. That's a principle that should demolish the pride in our hearts. We are prone to idolatry. You know, that's the step that we often don't take in this text. You know, sometimes people will laugh and scoff, it's like, how silly of them. You need to take the next step, believer. It's not just them. You and I are prone to idolatry. Our hearts are deceitful, and we need the guidance of the Word of God to worship God. That's not just an Old Testament problem. That's a problem for the New Testament church, too. Paul knew it. Unless you think that this text was just for the Old Testament church, the Apostle Paul references it himself. You might know that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. He warns us of idolatry. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. Where did you hear these words? The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, etc. That's our text in verse 6. What's the use? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now, all these things happened unto them as in samples And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Here is what you need to pay attention to. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Does Paul say, well, this is a quaint story in your Old Testament of our forefathers in the faith? He says, no, you look at them, and you need to take heed, lest you fall. Lest you fall. That's why this text is for our warning and learning. Do not think you are not prone to idolatry, friends. It's subtle. He says, you think you stand on sure ground. Take heed lest you fall. You're to be Bereans in all things, aren't you? You're to test all things, no matter how good they sound against his word. You must be suspicious of your motives in any religious act and ask, does God want this? And how do I know? You know, you can't answer in the affirmative unless what? You search the word of God. Now, this is so interesting, isn't it? Forty days prior, God spoke at Sinai, gave the second commandment, thou shalt not make a graven image. And here they are, desiring a graven image. Forty days is all it took. Forty days. What does this prove? How quickly we deny God's word to go our own way and in our own devising. In our text, verse 8 is so interesting. The Lord said to Moses, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. You see that? How quickly we go away from what God commanded. And what does Paul say? These things are examples to us, aren't they? Quickly out of the way. And he reiterates the regulative principle of worship, the things I commanded them. So that's uh, here that we are prone to idolatry. So we have to be suspicious of our own hearts. Doctrine number two, the Lord hates syncretism. Verse five, our key verse. And when Aaron saw it, meaning the golden calf, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to who? The Lord. Note what Aaron said. Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. We'll get to this new feast day as our next doctrine. 
But uh, first, boys and girls, did you notice in verse 5, Lord is all in capitals, right? That's the covenant name of our God. It is Jehovah. What is Aaron doing? He's appointing a holy day the next day to worship, not a false god, mind you, but Jehovah by way of idols. He wanted, in other words, to take the practices of the pagans who created representations of their gods, and then he baptized it, so to speak, to create a new festival day. That's what we call syncretism, right? Taking something from the outside world, from paganism, and merging and melding it with the worship of God. We must never do that, God says. And again, like I said, these people aren't stupid. They knew Jehovah brought them out of Egypt, and Aaron did as well. But he took the Egyptian practice of idolatry and joined it to the worship of Jehovah. We are forbidden from doing such things. We must stick to the word. It's Rome that incorporates paganism into worship and all those accretions that come in. And it's no surprise that as we think of December 25th, where does it come from? It comes from Rome. I'll talk about that a bit later. Um, Aaron's feast, look, even had this in view. He said, we are going to celebrate a mighty work of God, his liberating us from Egypt. But do you notice what's interesting about that? Had God not given them an institution to remember it? The Passover. Do you see how quickly we turn away from God's institutions to create things that he has never asked for and has never wanted? We put away the Passover in favor of this new feast that Aaron had devised, which we do, of course, right? We, we have, uh, what is the first day of the week? It's the resurrection day. But we put that aside, the commandment of God, and then we'll come up with a new, uh, a new day called Easter, Right? And so, what do we do? We do exactly what Aaron and the people were doing here. Doctrine number three, that leads to doctrine number three, and take heed of this. Church leaders have no power to proclaim a holy day. Notice this in verse five. Aaron made proclamation. Now, the more you understand the principles of church government, I think probably for every good Presbyterian, that word there, proclamation, probably made our skin crawl. Aaron made proclamation. He is the, uh, that's the rub. Read it slowly. Him making a proclamation is abhorrent to the Lord. He took a power reserved for God into his own self. I cannot appoint a holy day. Could I make a proclamation right now? Uh, Wednesday, we are going to celebrate such and such, and it's a day holy to the Lord. You would rightly say you are out of your mind, pastor. But when it comes to tradition, you don't think such things, probably. I cannot appoint a holy day. Aaron cannot appoint a holy day. The Pope in Rome cannot appoint a holy day. Boys and girls, who's the only one who can appoint a holy day? It's God. God himself. Our holy God. The power of elders in church office, and you need to get this right, we forget things that we ought never have forgotten. It's not legislative. We don't have legislative power to create new laws and commandments and such. It is not magisterial, it is ministerial power that the church has. We minister what? Thus saith the Lord. To go any further is blasphemy. And so that's what we must keep in mind. Aaron should have stuck to the proclamations of God. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. That's really, at the end of the day, the difference between a pope and a pastor, right? At least a real pastor. Pastors make no proclamations. Elders make no proclamations of their own. The only proclamations we all can make is thus saith the Lord and point to the Bible. If there is a holy day, we best find it in the Bible and say thus saith the Lord. We must be careful because, again, we have to take heed lest we fall. We do the same things and never learn. Consider this incident with Aaron. is repeated almost verbatim, isn't it, by King Jeroboam. 1 Kings 12.33, So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the 8th month, even in the month, listen to these words, which he had devised in his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. You see here, here is a counterfeit feast uh, by Jeroboam. A counterfeit feast to the Lord. What words did you note? Which he had devised where? Of his own heart. Now, I think Christians have gotten topsy-turvy. You know, we've kind of believed what the world says, which is just follow your heart wherever it leads you. Is that biblical? 
No, the heart is deceitful, friends, is what the Bible says. When you devise things in your own heart, you're moving away from the Lord. Whenever we do that, that's idolatry. And it's worth noting, if you go back, maybe, boys and girls, you can read 1 Kings 12. He repeats Aaron's playbook and creates two golden calves. And what does he say? Behold thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Same thing. Nothing new under the sun. Rome's harlotries and our present idolatries are very old. And in the New Testament, what we have to realize is even the God-instituted feast days of the Old Testament are gone. In fact, Paul was alarmed that the Galatians celebrated them. Listen to what he said. Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Galatians 4, 10 through 11. Now, if he was afraid with them celebrating what God had ordained, what about if they had started doing things that God had never ordained? The only holy day, and we've preached on the Sabbath before, so I won't preach on that again, but the only holy day that remains is the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, 52, 53 Lord's Days a year. The apostles never ordained anything else. You can read your New Testament, look for feast days, none. So that's all we have left. Doctrine four, leaders in the church often are the ones who lead the people away from the Lord. It's the leaders, ultimately, who are responsible. What was Aaron's duty when the people asked for idolatry? Should have said, no way. Absolutely not. You can throw me into the fire, but I am not going to follow idolatrous practices. Leaders, what do they do? And when the people, and, and uh, they sort of come and they agitate for this kind of thing, Exodus 32, 22, the leaders often blame their own people. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. People agitate, the leaders have no spine, and then they say, well, it's their fault, they wanted it, so I just did what they wanted. There's so many great illustrations in this text. You know, but I would sooner, and I'm not saying go, but I'm saying I would sooner you all left because we don't celebrate man-made holy days than proclaim something the Lord has not. Because I am responsible before God in my office to honor him above all. And that's what Aaron should have done. He should have been gripped with the fear of the Lord and not the fear of man, as we heard this morning. Doctrine five, in legislating, leaders violate the conscience of true believers. You know, there were true believers in the midst of Israel here, right? And what was Aaron doing when he made a proclamation? He was binding their consciences, wasn't he? Right, that's why Moses asked, who's on the Lord's side later on? Could you imagine it? Put yourself there. Put yourself there. You know the prohibition against idolatry. Let's say that you actually didn't forget it. But here is a leader of God's people, right? You know the commandment of God. And here is a leader of God's people saying, now we will have a feast to these golden calves. Telling me to bow down before an idol and sacrifice to Jehovah before it. That is a violation of the principle of the liberty of conscience Christ has given you. Whenever a leader tells you to do something God has not said, you know, we are so backwards. Liberty of conscience is not, I get to do whatever my conscience wants to do. Liberty of conscience is freedom from the tyranny of people telling you what to do, which God has never told you to do. That's liberty of conscience and liberty um, in the church. Doctrine six, leaders are responsible to keep the worship of God pure. They are to destroy what are called uh, as our standards call them, monuments of idolatry. It's so interesting. What did Moses do to the golden calf? Did he sort of just put it in a museum somewhere and say, well, it's gold and I suppose it's valuable, so let's just stick it over there and we'll just take it with all the other stuff we have. He utterly destroyed the thing, right? He made the people actually, in boys and girls, you might find this interesting, he made them ingest it. So it would become essentially what it is, refuse. Right? Moses didn't find any value in its gold. He found value in honoring God. It doesn't matter how expensive that gold is. That may have been all the gold that they had. But he says, I will destroy it. And so you learn your lesson. You will ingest it. And you are going to find out probably within 24 hours what it really is. It ought never to have existed. And the feast day, not to be celebrated. 
Hezekiah did something very similar, you remember. When something the Lord even instituted became idolatrous, the bronze serpent, he utterly decimated it. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. You see, church leaders have the same duty today. In the New Testament, you also find examples where idolatry is put away. In Acts 19, 19 through 20, many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Do you remember what the next words are? So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. What is it that prevails over idolatry? It is the word of God. And when the word of God prevails, all idolatry is swept away. And you see, again, 50,000 pieces of silver. It doesn't matter how valuable the stuff is in the world's eyes. It is destroyed. It is killed. It is put away. But when the word is not taken seriously, idolatry arises. That is exactly why the papacy hates the word of God, isn't it? Uh, And has sought to keep it from God's people so that their idolatry can run rampant. They don't want the word to prevail. And I would just say, you know, you might be called, if you follow these principles and practices, you might be called things like Puritan or iconoclast or something like that, right? Don't shy away from that. (laughs) Is that... Is that really something to be ashamed of? Right? To be an iconoclast. Uh, Moses is one, he's commended. Hezekiah is one, he's commended. In Acts 19, the people are iconoclasts and they are commended and the word is prevailing. We're all commanded to put away what God hates within our own spheres, right? Uh, not to run around to all the churches out here and destroy them. We are to, in our own spheres, put away idolatry. Doctrine number seven. We are prone and we have to see this, especially in this season, to connect carnality to worship. I don't think we understand the depravity of this text. On their feast day in verse 6, and they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Okay, they rise up early and they offer up elements of worship. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And, and we might think, boys and girls, this seems all very harmless. But... This is actually a very polite translation. They were mixing in the lusts of the flesh, eating and drinking and rose up to play. The word play there is meant for polite company. It really is. The Hebrew deals with lewdness and fornication. You don't even need to know Hebrew. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 through 8 actually interprets the text, as I have said earlier. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. See, hear this. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Right? This is what happens. You can tie the worship of God to carnal practices. And it doesn't have to be as extreme as drunkenness and fornication. It can take the form it takes this time of year. Gluttony, covetousness, lies, debt. All these carnal things are often attached to the worship of God. And we baptize them and say, well, as part of the worship of God, maybe it's after the worship of God we're going to do all these things. But these things are all carnal practices. And in fact, if you look at idolatry, you use and excuse the carnal practices by having worship first. I've given my peace offerings. I've given my burnt offerings. Now I do what I really want. And that's often a principle this time of year. Okay, maybe I even go to church on December 25th, but I'm going to run straight away and do what I really want. And we know what that is. Doctrine 8. And this really does cheer the child of God. How desperately we need Christ to worship God. How desperately we need Jesus. Why were the people not eradicated? Because Moses pleads... And he prefigures Christ. Exodus 32, 31 through 32. Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. This is a prefiguring of Christ, isn't it? And this is where we actually find our hope and our cheer. It's not that we, uh, we think that we keep worship perfectly, but instead that Jesus mediates perfectly. God stayed judgment because of Moses' intervention. How much more so with Christ? Where he says, essentially, strike me down instead of my people who are idolaters. 
All of our sinful worship, all the sin of our heart is cleansed by him in worship. But the question is, should we live in sin that grace may abound, right? God forbid, Romans 6. And you can see that even though the people were not killed, they faced consequences, which will be our last doctrine, doctrine number 9. You find the consequences in verse 35. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. We are in our own sort of fishbowl, I think. But I think if you look back at church history and you pulled yourself out, the church is currently suffering, friends. It's not what it ought to be. You know, there have been many incidents where people will say, I've gone through church and church in town and nobody is, hardly anybody's preaching the gospel. Is that the sign of a church in its health right now? So many people will say, I don't think the pastor actually opened his Bible today. And then people are living in sin, and you have ministers flagrantly in sin. And can you say that the church is what it ought to be right now? No, we are living in a time of great declension and decline, and idolatry is a major reason for it. So don't be satisfied that you are doing what the church down the block is doing. You be satisfied when you are doing what God tells you to do in the Word. And so, to wrap up this heading... You and I cannot institute holy days. The Pope cannot institute holy days. Aaron cannot. We have no power. We must derive all of our practices from the Bible and not our hearts. Otherwise, it is, and this word has been neglected, I think. Recover the word superstition. Because that word is important for the Christian. Because anything that we offer to God without him saying, yes, I bless that, is superstition. No different than you having a, a lucky rabbit's foot, really. You know, we laugh at that. But why do you think God is going to accept the things that he has not laid out? The word is superstition, or it is tradition. And God calls both of that idolatry. And those practices must be eradicated lest God's displeasure come on us. So then next, our next heading is connections. That brings us to the so-called Holy Day next week, uh, December 25th, Christmas, the Christ Mass. And in view of what we have learned thus far, the question we must ask is, does Jesus want Christmas? Does Jesus want Christmas? That's the question of the hour, right? Uh, In other words, you need to reframe what you might be thinking, which is not, do you want Christmas? Does my family want Christmas? The question is, does God want Christmas? And has God asked for Christmas? If so, let me ask you the following question, if you think that God wants it. Where? Where? I'm not asking if you feel like God will accept it, because you've already seen that principle doesn't work. I say, open your Bible and show me chapter and verse and find out where the Lord has asked for such a thing. Well, it's not going to be found in your Bible, and I've looked, and I trust you have as well. Where does it come from? Well, ostensibly, it celebrates the birth of Christ. But when you search the New Testament, and maybe you should search your New Testament in this way, the apostles had no interest in celebrating the birth of Christ in a heightened way like that, right? They left no instructions for Christians to do it. Uh, There's no instructions like for the Lord's Supper, where the apostle says, I deliver to you what the Lord delivered to me, right? They never show a gathering for it in the book of Acts like they did on the Lord's Day, right? The two, two of the Gospels don't even mention the birth of Christ. It's the resurrection that has preeminence all throughout the New Testament. And mark what we're saying. It's not that the incarnation is unimportant. It is vital. And I hope you hear it preached from the the pulpit, that we're often in awe of the mystery of godliness, that God came down and was manifest in the flesh for our sins, that his blood, that he would take on uh, humanity, that the blood of Jesus Christ would be counted the blood of God, that it would have infinite value and worth for sinners like us. But to set apart a feast for it does not come from the Bible. It comes from elsewhere. And if it comes from elsewhere, it is superstition and ought not be done. So where does it come from? I, I actually went to the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, and even they admit that Christmas has a late origin. The earliest records from church fathers like Irenaeus and Tertullian don't even mention it among what's Christians celebrated. The earliest one uh, one sees the incarnation celebrated on December 25th was in Rome in the 4th century. That's a long time, actually. 
you might think of it, well, 2,000 years or so, 400 years, maybe that's not so long after uh, the resurrection of Christ. But you think about this, boys and girls, how long has our nation been around? Right? <laughs> Less than 300 years. And so this is a long time to go without there being a set feast for the incarnation. Now, this is no problem at all, right? And it's also interesting because the papacy is on the ascendancy, right, during this time, if you know history. Pope Leo uh, the Great, considered the per- first pope by many, is not not much after this time. Now, this is not a problem for papists because they teach the church has the power to make pronouncements. Like Aaron, you know, Pope can come and speak ex cathedra and say, we will be doing this and this and you must do this and this if you're one of the faithful. Not a big deal for the papists, but this is a very big deal for Protestants, right? We claim sola scriptura, don't we? We claim we are Bereans and that all things are done in accordance with the word. And so to the believer, it doesn't actually matter if the celebration arises in the 2nd century or 3rd or 21st century. If it is not in the book, God doesn't want it. It's as simple as that. It's simple, but not for our flesh. This day, though, has arisen by the doctrines and commandments of men. Some bishop proclaimed, like Aaron, that the 25th of December is a feast day to the Lord. And the church just sort of went along for the ride. Is there any biblical support for the day of Christ's birth being December 25th? No. And what's happening now? Scholars are trying to find find that day somehow connected to the birth of Christ. But what are we doing? We're doing it on tradition. And we're doing it on man's authority. And do you not think if it was so important for us to celebrate it in a heightened way that God might have put it in the Bible? This is the day my son was born. Remember it always. No. See, at the end of the day, you can cut out all the clutter with the questions that come. Did Rome syncretize this day from pagan ceremonies? Is Christmas pagan and so on? And if so, which ceremonies are they? Uh, Who knows? I'm sure that Rome did. They're very good at syncretizing pagan festivals such as Saturnalia. But I would say don't be distracted by all that. Those are all distractions. It's really chaff. Uh, Hunting down paganism is irrelevant, really. Because you can be 100% certain that Rome uh, and no one else has the right to establish a day God has not established. End of argument. It's really that simple. Nobody has the right to do what God says um, uh, has not commanded. The other thing, though, that we do know is that the Christ Mass of the Roman Catholic Church uh, is idolatrous, right? It is the Christ Mass, and I think we forget that as Protestants. And somehow, even though we won't go to a Mass ourselves, suddenly we'll incorporate something that the Roman Catholics do that even includes the word Mass in it. The Mass is idolatrous, not just idolatry of a bygone era, but like the bronze serpent was in Hezekiah's day, it is idolatry of the current age. Today, right, the Mass continues daily. What did they do in the Mass, boys and girls? Why was the Mass made illegal in places like Scotland? In the Mass, the papists claimed to re-sacrifice Jesus Christ. That is blasphemy. And then, think of Exodus 32. They adore a piece of bread and say, this is your God. That's essentially exactly what Aaron did, isn't it? These are your gods that have led you out of Egypt. And that's exactly what they do with with a wafer. This is your God, O people. It's almost uncanny, isn't it? But Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, and the Christ Mass is blasphemy. And I think a sad thing has happened Protestants have lost their revulsion for Rome's blasphemies. We really have. I mean, these things ought to turn our stomach. What are they doing with Christ? It ought to grieve us. They claim to re-sacrifice him. They tell the people to bow down before a piece of bread. These things are, are disgusting if we knew who our God was. It ought to turn our stomach. And what fruit has come out of the Christ Mass? The people corrupting themselves, as in our text. Soon, I thought it was interesting, Augustine, soon after it was instituted, Augustine warned the people about the debauchery that followed celebrating the Christ Mass. And what do you have today? What debauchery do you find today that is associated with the Christ Mass? Santa Claus, a kind of God 
who is a pagan kind of deity. Uh, this is the kind of God a pagan would make, who has attributes belonging to God only, omniscience, and so on. And what do we do? We lie to our children about his existence, and then we let them in on the secret later. And what does this do to your witness to the invisible God, who you also tell them exists? When are they going to come and say, well, I guess maybe God doesn't exist, because Santa Claus, that was a lie. And now, I was so astonished when this started happening, now we gaslight our children with Elf on the Shelf. I mean, come on. The only winners besides the Pope are big businesses and the credit card companies during this time. People put themselves into debt because of societal pressures to give gifts. And maybe you're fairly well off and that's not a big deal, but you know what a big deal it is to so many so many who barely make ends meet and are being told that if you love somebody, you will give them a present. People go into such debt and it's heartbreaking and depression rises and people are having all kinds of spiritual maladies this time of year because it is anti-gospel, friends. And pagans, they fill the day with drunkenness and debauchery. You know, I was part of video game companies and they're so-called Christmas parties were full of drunkenness and so on. And then in my neighborhood, at least, and I'm sure it's in everyone, uh, Second Commandment violations are strewn in our neighborhood. Representations of Jesus as a baby are everywhere. He is not a baby anymore. He is the risen Savior who, when John saw him in the book of the Revelation, fell at his feet as though dead with his eyes as flame. That's not the Jesus that the world sees this time of year. They see a golden calf that they can handle and then discard when they're done with their presence. Then the fourth commandment when the Lord, Lord's Day collides with December 25th, which wins out? Look at the closed churches next week and you tell me. Christians will be pursuing next Lord's Day idols under the tree presence rather than Christ who is that great free gift that none of us had to purchase. Freely given so that we may be saved. Yet you tell, as I've said before, a man or woman to keep the Sabbath holy and holy indignation will erupt. Unholy indignation, rather. And the ninth commandment, how many lies are told? Santa Claus, the day of our day, a Lord's birth. You know, it's so funny that atheists know December 25th is not his birthday. And now we've given a tool to the atheist to say, well, you are a bunch of liars because this cannot be his day of birth. And we've weakened our witness. So they basically say, what else are you lying about? You can't defend it. It's a fool's errand, and men try. Well, for some Reformation history, in the Second Reformation, the Christ Mass was put away. In 1647, the British Parliament banned even private Christ Mass celebrations. The Dutch Reformed, you might know, had a harder time, but their leading light, a brockle wrote, the church should not observe them and that the so-called feast days ought to be eliminated. You can find that most of you probably have the Christian's Reasonable Service, Volume 1, Chapter 2. And what's the head of the doctrine? The Word of God. What's not in the Word is not to be done. And in our own nation, the early ministers here denounced it, whether they were congregational or Presbyterian. Increase Mather, he denounced it. It was outlawed by the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 17th century. It wasn't until the 19th century that sentiment in this country began to shift. You know, the 19th century hardly had anything good come out of it religiously. There was the decline of religion. Pluralism had affected the churches. And then came the cultural volley, a Christmas carol in 1843. And that actually popularized it in the culture. It was not the Protestant church that popularized it. Actually, popular culture did, Dickens did. And it might interest you to know this, that Dickens was a heretic, he rejected the Bible as infallible. Uh, he despised evangelicalism, evangelical religions. His friend said he was a Unitarian. And he actually wrote, and this is so interesting, vehemently against the Sabbath in a pamphlet urging people to get rid of it. Satan used a man like this to weaken Sabbath observance. And next week you're going to see it come to fruition with the churches closed. And it was actually a Christmas carol that popularized the secular humanist trappings of Christmas family gatherings, food, dancing games, etc. Of course, it didn't come from the Bible. It actually came from the haters of evangelicalism, which is very interesting. 
You know, it's a strange twist, but this is how these things go, as God um, mocks the so-called wise. The pagan culture had now appropriated the Christ mass from Rome, a kind of repaganizing what Rome had syncretized in irony. And as Christmas is idolatrous, its fruit is evident, as I've said, debauchery, debt, and depression. Much more could be said, but I am certainly out of time, over time, and I've got much more. Uh, But simply, the Christ Mass is a feast day God never appointed. That makes it superstition. That makes it the tradition of men. You know, we hate hearing about the traditions of men unless they are our traditions, right? And then suddenly we're okay with them. And today it is inextricably linked to the blasphemies and idolatries of the Roman Catholic Church. Its cultural observance is the product of men who hated the Sabbath and wanted a secular humanist version or vision of a brotherhood of all men. It gave rise to Santa Claus, Elf on a Shelf, Untold Debt, Materialism, and Misery. And it makes you ask, what concord hath Christ with Belial? There are three common objections, and I want to cover perhaps the best ones. Uh, The first is that in John 10, you see Jesus go to the temple on the Feast of Dedication. And they will point out that's a feast that's not appointed by God. Uh, It was a commemoration in the intertestamental period of the rededication of the temple by uh, Judas Maccabeus. And they say that Jesus' presence there show that unbiblical feasts are no big deal, so you should go and celebrate Christmas too. And that's kind of used as a smoking gun in some quarters to sort of wipe away all the doctrine, all the scriptures that, that we have seen thus far. But friends, if you read that chapter, he came to declare himself the door of the sheep. He came to witness of himself. And I thought on this last year, you remember, we evangelized at the Christmas tree lighting at McKinney, right? Imagine if you came, you heard, maybe you read our our, our session minutes, and you came to the bizarre conclusion that we went there to celebrate the tree lighting. But as so many were there, it was a wonderful opportunity to witness, and Jesus did. Second, they will use Romans 14, which is sort of the trump card to any commandment you hate. In Romans 14, 5, and 6, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. You almost wonder, right, why Aaron didn't use this argument with Moses. But I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm regarding it for the Lord. So why does it matter? It's almost like, Aaron, couldn't you have picked this up? But there are two things on this text. First, those days are the Jewish ceremonies which were fading away. And those are God's institutions and not man's. Think of the Feast of Booths and so on. Some who were weak in the faith were still observing them. And their weak conscience said, I must keep the institutions of God because in their mind, God has said, and I feel like I need to keep these institutions still, even though the apostle is bearing with them long, saying, well, these things are all fulfilled in Christ. But they're, they're having a hard time. Thus saith the Lord, but you're saying they're gone away. And so the, uh, they have a weak conscience. And the apostle counsels patience with them. And what is never done, I have found, is how you try, these people who try to use Romans 14, how do you harmonize that with Galatians 4? You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you. Afraid for you, essentially. You see, Paul doesn't commend these days when they are asserted as as things that must be observed, right? And even these texts, as I have said, deal with God's Old Testament days, not blasphemous Roman Catholic ones. Third, they will use the Jews' observation of Purim in Esther as a kind of justification. But if you read that uh, observance and you see what the Jews actually did with it, it has more in common with a civil day of celebration, like our 4th of July, like an independence kind of day. Uh, I, I even looked at the wiki article, and I thought it's interesting the pagans know these things. Purim has more of a national than a religious character, and its status as a holiday is on a different level from those days ordained holy by the Torah. It's that simple. More can be said, and if it's needful, I can preach another sermon on this to- topic, but time has gone away. So let's conclude with applications. And I do believe you have had applications drawn out all throughout our time. But let me reassert a few of the ones that are of utmost importance. The first and most important of all, to rid unholy, man-made holy days from our churches. And elders, that is our duty, right? To be like Moses and Hezekiah. To be provoked by idolatry as Paul was at Mars Hill. And that leads to, second, you cannot disassociate 
the religious observance from the cultural. After all, it is still called the Christ Mass for a reason, right? You know, it's very interesting that the revelry ended in Exodus 32 when Moses came down with his righteous indignation. Could you imagine Aaron, I was thinking about this, could you imagine Aaron saying something like this? Well, brother, now that you've smashed the golden calf, would you mind if we keep celebrating the occasion? Right? It's absurd. This is a religious feast. Put it all away. He knows better. It's just as absurd, sadly, to celebrate Christmas when it is sourced from idolatry and it is sourced from the mass of the Roman Catholic Church. The trees, the presents, all of it, it comes from the pollution of idolatry. That's the source of those things. I was thinking about this. Even the Christmas tree, we don't even, these things don't provoke us. I'm not going to use it that, you know, it's, it's pure paganism or whatever else. That's not my argument. There's even a hymn to it. Oh, Christmas tree. Can you not see these things are presently idolatrous? God is a jealous God. And then there is covetousness. Children wanting this and that and the other thing, and they believe it's their obligation. And then the parents having a, a new religion around this time and say, well, if you are good, you will get the present. What religion is that? That is Pelagianism. That is Pelagianism. That is not the gospel. Right? You even have, uh, they tell their children, uh, Santa's making a list of those who are naughty and nice. That is Pelagianism. No one is good in God's sight and all need a savior. And the scripture says covetousness is what? Idolatry. See, we're, we're, idolatry starts, Christmas starts with idolatry and its end product is idolatry because it inflames covetousness and debt and everything else. Put it away. It's a feast born out of idolatry and defiance of the word. You cannot celebrate the religious observance and the revelry that follows. Yeah, I spoke to several this week, unprovoked. They didn't know I'm preaching on this text. And they said, I am so stressed out this time of year. I've got so much to do. I have to go and buy all these things, and I don't know if I have enough money, and I need to give gifts to these people and that people and the other. And you ask, why? Why? What earthly or heavenly good is coming out of any of this? All you're doing is you're stressing yourself out, and God hasn't wanted it. And that's exactly what we expect, right, when we see here. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. There's always that kind of thing. But Christ, right, the Sabbath day, for instance, his institution is a day of rest, where we are relieved of our burdens. And he says, don't work. Relax. Spend time with me. You're beloved. We don't want that, but we want to spend a ton of money and we want to be uh, uh, going left and right in every other place and feeling bad if I don't get a gift. Oh, I forgot this person. All that said, third, don't have a bah humbug spirit, right? We are jealous for God, but we are filled with the joy of the Lord and the love of our neighbor. Be kind. There are a lot of people who are ignorant of any of this, even good Christian brethren. And you need to be patient with them. And I know it is when it comes to friends and family that this often becomes very difficult, especially if you have these convictions. We fear to let them down. We fear to hurt their feelings with our convictions. But um, And this is perhaps one of the hardest words that the Lord gave us. He brought a sword. He divides even families, sad to say. Uh, what about family gatherings? Well, if it's a nice meal, and we've, we've done that as a family, a nice meal together because everybody has a day off, there's no harm in any of that, right? We're not saying don't spend time with your family. This day is a, a day where you can't do that. But when it becomes, you know, the gift exchange and the Christmas carols and how Jesus is especially the reason for a season, which is essentially a ninth commandment violation and a third commandment violation, it starts to take on the trappings of idolatry and even secular humanism. So simply let, I would just counsel, let your friends and family know if you, your convictions, if you don't participate, especially especially on the Sabbath day, it's not that you don't love them. You do love them. It's just that you love Jesus more. Here's the thing, right? And I think if you do this, you will be blameless, and nobody can blame you, and they might blame you, but that's not your fault. Walk in a way they ought never uh, never say, I don't know that you love them. 364 and a quarter days the rest of the year. And then who's it on if they won't respect your convictions? Right? I always thought about that. You know, I'm worried about their feelings, but do they have no care for me and my convictions before God? 
How much of a friend are they? How much do they love me if they can't simply say, I can only go so far, right? We tell our own children, they're not really your friend if they don't don't accept your convictions. But then when it comes to us as adults, we ask, why don't my family, why don't my friends respect me and what I believe from the heart, right? So when it comes to that, yeah, you might mourn that. But at the end of the day, don't feel bad for that. Because that's on them, not on you. Anyhow, let that question settle your heart. Well, I know this is a difficult subject today, and no, it's hard probably on many of you. But if the Lord's glory is truly the aim of your life, if you truly believe that the chief end of man, meaning yourself, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, these things should matter to you. We want to honor Jesus purely, we want to see him clearly, and we cannot do either of that through Christ's Mass. And when the church is revived, all we will want is this. We will say we want what Jesus wants, nothing more. And superstition and tradition will be put away. And so to that end, may he revive your hearts and mine too. And I know there are still many golden calves in my own heart, and they're in yours as well. But may he purge them all out by the word of his power. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. Our Father and our God, we confess, O God, that we quickly go out of the way. And we quickly go away from the commandments of God towards the superstitions and traditions of men. This is our fault, O God. Forgive us, O Lord. And how glad we are to know we have a mediator by which we approach God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're thankful that he intervenes and intercedes for us now. But Lord, help us to never, never say that we just don't care what your word says, even though we have Christ as our mediator. Help us to say that because we have Christ, we do care because you have given us your only begotten son. You did not spare him for us. So how can we not spare giving up all the idolatry in our heart. Oh, Lord, help us to see the glory of God and help us put away all that comes between us and our God. Help us have a clearer sight of Jesus as we remove tradition and superstition. And may your people here be blessed as they seek after you with fervency. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.